3: Good morning, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio, the world headquarters, as you all know, of common sense. Never has the world needed it more than we do now, as we survey the carnage wreaked upon the populace by the government over the weekend. While ministers quaffed port and munched on mince pies in Downing Street, the rest of the country was practically changing plans, unbooking travel arrangements, cancelling Christmas parties and generally wondering when all this bleeding madness is actually going to end. Sajid Javid fired a bolt out of the blue on Saturday night while I was in the middle of watching some rubbish on TV, can't remember what it was and announced pre-departure testing for everyone travelling after 4am tomorrow morning. The surprise development has already been branded ridiculous by the travel industry who are calling the move hopeless. They're right of course, it's done nothing but create uncertainty and chaos. We'll be seeking the advice of Simon Calder from The Independent the one wise man in the land of travel idiocy. To explain what to do if you have got plans for the Christmas Eve And believe me, as you just heard from Julia Hartley Brewer, this is not about people having a jolly. It's not about going on holiday. This is the first time for an awful lot of people, including me, by the way, uh, that they can see their relatives who happen to live abroad. We are in a global world, are we not? The idea that somebody only lives down the road from you and your entire family live within a 20 mile radius of your house is nonsensical. If that's your situation, I'm very happy for you. But in my situation and lots of other people's situations, that is simply not the case. I've got a son that lives in California. I've got a daughter that lives in Dubai. I've got a mother that lives in Connecticut. I've got a sister that lives in New York. I've got children that live here as well. Now... Why should I be somehow penalized financially as a result of that? I'm not having it, I'm really not having it and I'm not happy, uh, but there we are. That's enough about me moaning. But there are lots of other people who are in much worse positions than me who have had to cancel trips because it just simply was gonna cost too much money. If I went to America this week uh, or next week rather, um, uh, and w- which is when I'm due to go, 14 tests is the number of tests that we would have to do, and that's a minimum before they introduce anything else, and that's before uh, the Americans possibly introduce even more stringent rules. So the whole system uh, has fallen apart, the system is ridiculous, and this is basically for a variant of the disease which has so far caused no deaths whatsoever. Really? 0344 First up, though, we'll be speaking to Anne Whittaker, former Tory minister and Brexit Party MEP, about the state of play, the latest government policy on middle-class drug use, and the increasing rare over the sentencing of little Arthur Labinho Hughes' killers. It's now being said that they should never be released. I can't say I disagree. 0344 499 1000. Rod Little joins us as well after his latest outing to the University of Durham, where some woke students walked out of a speech he was giving on the grounds that he was being too horrible. And Mark Bukowski is here as well with his take on the royal family. This weekend, they were all over the papers with podcasts, mental health issues, and links to dodgy billionaires from the Middle East. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. Uh, What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And where are you going? if anywhere at all Uh, and are you cancelling Christmas because Boris Johnson it is said is thinking about it for the 18th of December isn't that great just a week before Christmas he's going to come out and give his verdicts on whether or not you can do anything well I don't think we're interested thanks Boris why don't you just get down into the bunker at Downing Street and just never emerge uh, until the spring like the groundhog as ever of course uh, we'll take your calls 0344 Peter Hitchens is here as well uh, he wrote a big column over the weekend about many things uh, and also we'll be telling you all about the new uh, craze it's the gender person that's right I didn't say gingerbread. I said genderbread. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio.
4: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk
3: Radio. I can scarcely tell you how the weekend went because it wasn't great as soon as that stuff dropped on Saturday night was completely um, unadorned and unannounced by the way nobody had any clue that Sajid Javid was going to suddenly announce on Saturday that the whole world was going to change when it came to travel and also what's going on with this Saturday business you know the previous Saturday they had a press conference this Saturday they announced something massive why are they doing it on Saturday I don't know perhaps Anne Whittakin can tell us Anne, a very good morning to you welcome
5: Good morning to you.
3: Thank you very much indeed. What is going on with the government announcing things on a Saturday? It's all rather uh, unusual, isn't it? Do they do that so they don't have to do it in the House of Commons?
5: Well, I think you summed it up rather in your introduction when you referred to a bunker. And I think that's what we've now got. We've got a bunker mentality uh, as far as COVID goes. Uh, And, you know... Omicron, I still call it Omicron because that's how I was taught to pronounce the Greek letter. I mean, Omicron is so mild. They're not worried about it in South Africa, uh, where it is supposed to have emanated from. It hasn't caused, as you said, deaths. It doesn't cause hospitalizations. It's a very mild variant. Um, you know, if we are going to have this sort of reaction every time that virus mutates, and it will mutate, and it will mutate regularly just as colds and flu do, if we're going to have this sort of Silly overreaction, uh, then um, I mean, I would question you know, whether the government is even worthy of respect, yes. um, not the opposition is any better.
3: Right. And what we learned over the weekend, Anne, as I'm sure you would have read, is that the, uh, the, the, the clarification and the justification for the actions of this government are that, well, last time around, you gave us a hard time for not acting quick enough. So we better act quicker and harder and do something, even though it may not be required.
5: Yeah. In other words, in short, PR ER exercise yeah. being seen to be do something to be doing something at the bar of public opinion. It rules far too many government reactions. This idea, you must be seen to be doing something. Um, and, you know, OK, you can't give us a hard time for not doing enough this time. That is not what should be driving it. What should be driving it is a very simple question. This is very dangerous. Yeah. As yet we have no proof that it's dangerous.
3: And I know what we keep hearing is, well, you know, we don't have any proof that it's dangerous yet, but we're certainly looking for some and we hope to find it. It's almost as though they want it to be dangerous so they
5: can keep us in in, in sort of lockdown mode. Uh, Indeed. I I mean, as you say, bunker mentality. I mean, they just want to lock down against this. I don't mean lock down in the literal sense, but they want to just keep away from this. They don't want to face it. Um, And they just they are terrified of the enemy at the gates, which they see as public opinion. If by any chance they don't do enough, fast enough. So therefore they go the other way and they do too much too soon without any
3: Yeah, and it's so now random, um, as I said to somebody this morning, that you're travelling to another country, in my case America, you take a test before you get on a plane to come back, you then arrive back in Britain and you are considered to be unclean because you have to isolate until you can take another test which proves that you're negative when you're already holding one in your hand. I mean, one of the most ridiculous things I read yesterday is if you, for example, were taking your children on a one, one day trip to Lapland to meet Santa, right? You have to take the test that you would take in Lapland in Britain before you go, before you come back. So you'd actually take two tests before you go, one of which would be representative of the one you would have taken um, when you came back. And you can't. It's like living in Alice in Wonderland territory.
5: It is Alice in Wonderland. That's exactly uh, what it is. I'm supposed to be whether I still am. I don't know. But I'm supposed to be speaking on the cruise ship uh, over Christmas.
0: Mm.
5: Very uh, nice. uh, Every time I get to a different port, I've got to take a test, um, and then when I come back to Britain, I've got to take another test. Uh, and despite all these tests, um, I've still got to isolate two days until I have final confirmation through a PCR. Now, it honestly is a nonsense. I mean, it's a complete nonsense. But well, it's
3: pathetic, isn't it? I mean, like I said, if I was to go to America on the 20th of December, which is what I was planning to do, which I've now I just now think we can't do. You we'll know, you know, have to, to do it with a family of four, 14 different tests, which would approximate to somewhere around about 800 to £900, pounds, in addition uh, to what we thought we were going to have to do when we booked the actual trip. And it's just ridiculous. It's, it's totally mad. All I can say is, is that it seems to me that this is a, an absolute and
5: utter attempt to stop people from doing anything. Well, I honestly wouldn't mind paying the money if I would be convinced this was necessary for the nation's health. It is not necessary. There is nothing in this new variant to drive this sort of level of panic at this stage. Nothing. And I think the fear we've got, you probably have in the back of your mind, I've certainly got in the back of my mind now, I'm travelling for the first time in two years, uh, is, you know, Actually, is something going to change while I'm there?
3: Well, that's the other Uh, problem.
5: Will I be coming back at all? Yes. Well, that's the
3: other problem. I don't know if you saw Richard E. Grant over the weekend, um, who has found himself in quarantine. He went to visit his 90-year-old mother in South Africa, got caught up in the middle of the Red List uh, Brigade scenario, then came after he said having had loads of flights cancelled, he came back to Britain to find himself in a holiday inn at Heathrow or Gatwick for 200 and something pounds a night for 10 days, right, at his own expense, and they're feeding him some of the most ludicrous and ghastly-looking food you've ever seen in your life for 20 quid a day. And he's going, what's it all for? Yeah.
5: I mean, I accidentally went to a quarantine hotel. I was told to meet somebody there. They didn't realise it had been converted to a quarantine hotel. And honestly, it was like culverts. I was met at the doors by by two... um, uh, I can only call them guards. That's the only expression I can use. They (laughs) were security people. Uh, who said to me, you know, you cannot come in, you cannot cross the threshold. And eventually they didn't say so. It was it was some top secret thing. Eventually I tweaked that this must be a, a quarantine hotel. I mean, the idea of being incarcerated, incarcerated in one of those for 10 days at huge expense and for no good reason. That is the bit that I keep emphasising. There is nothing in this new variant at the moment to cause this reaction, nothing. No. And this is what I find extraordinary, that, you know,
3: there are still people walking around going, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. Why are you travelling? Well, because people need to see the people they haven't seen for two years. People need to have the freedom to move around the world as they wish, because there isn't any reason not to. All of the statistical information outside of this variant is that the numbers are going down. Deaths are nowhere near what they were in
0: January, uh, nowhere near
5: even where they were this time last year. Well, we were told the vaccinations were our passport to freedom. Yeah. And they proved to be nothing of the sort. We have the vaccinations. They've been proved to be extremely effective. Uh, I'm double-jagged. Uh, you know, most of us are.
3: Well, apparently uh, that's they- not enough now because they say, well, of course, you'll have to get a third one. Otherwise, you won't be considered to be, um, you know, properly protected.
5: Yeah, and and, and that will will probably go on for some time. I'm sure there'll be a fourth and a fifth and possibly even a sixth. But the point I'm making is that we were told that if we were vaccinated, that was our passport to freedom. The vaccinations have worked. If they haven't worked, that would be a different argument altogether. They have worked. Why on earth haven't we now got the guts to start living normally? When I think what my parents went through and my granny, who was bombed out by the Luftwaffe, came up out of an air raid shelter, no home left. And I think what that generation went through uh, and that we're in a tiz about a variant it not even worrying the country in which it
3: originated. And also, let's face it, and I know that people take exception to me saying these things, but a very small number of people in this country have died as a result of getting COVID compared to the numbers of people in the country. And of course, you don't want to say that, you know, uh, anybody dying is, is, is simply something to be expected. And it's very sad. And if one of your relatives has died, I'm very sorry. But you know, you cannot build a society around trying to protect a small number of people who might be at risk of something.
5: You just can't. Yeah, and I speak as somebody uh, who lost a, a very good friend to COVID. But I also think the figures are inflated. I'm not saying the disease isn't serious. I'm not saying that for moment. But the figures are inflated. Of course they are. Uh, because there's no distinction between who who's dies of COVID and who dies mm. with COVID, which are two completely different things. If people go into hospital, they go in there for a reason. And if they're going to die anyway, the fact that they die with COVID at the end of it is, you know, is is almost irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I think we've got to accept risk. I mean, if you think back to the major flu epidemics when thousands and thousands of people died, it hardly even uh, made the headlines. No. And also nobody was talking
3: about it, you know, I mean, we've all had bad flu and bad flu is, is pretty horrendous and you can be knocked out for for as long as a month, you know, until you actually get back to normal. But nobody spends their entire life talking about that and nothing else, you know, whereas this government, it seems to me, only about a week and a half ago, it looked as though we were out of all this. It looked as though yeah. we were in good, good, good order. Suddenly we discover a variant, uh, which, as you say, so far doesn't appear to be particularly dangerous. And it's like they've become obsessed again.
5: Yeah. Uh, I I mean, they are, and they're obsessed with being caught out. What they're obsessed with is fear. That's actually what's got hold of them. They're terrified of being caught out, that maybe something which is very mild will turn into something a bit worse. Uh, There's no sign of that at the moment. Uh, And therefore, they must be seen to have done every last thing. But in fact, I think it's time we had a serious debate about the efficacy of masks, because there's plenty of scientific opinion that says, you know, it's dubious.
3: Yeah. And now, of course, having brought masks back in in certain circumstances, everybody seems to have become obsessed with mask wearing. And, you know, um, I'm of the opinion that if something is a law, you either have to a- a- abide by it or not. There is no law that I know of that has an exemption. And I keep saying this to people, you know, it can't be a proper law if you're exempt from it. If I go into a shop and steal something and the police turn up, I can't suddenly turn around and go, oh, I all right, I'm exempt from stealing. I can do that. So you can't arrest me. It's, it's, it makes
5: no yeah, sense. I, I will buy into the exemptions because there are people who quite have serious breathing difficulties and who really can't wear masks. I will buy into the exemptions, Mike. No, so will
3: I. But what I'm saying is is that on that basis, it's not a law.
5: Well, uh, the law says that if you are able to, you must wear a, a mask in certain situations. But even that is deeply muddled. You go into a shop which has a cafe, and while you're in the shop proper, you've got to wear a mask. But the instant you just turn into the cafe, which is all part of the shop, you can take it off. You can breathe COVID overall and sundry, yeah. Um. And, and you then come out and you must put it back on again. It is a complete nonsense. You sit on a train. You're supposed to wear a mask. Mm. Then they serve you food and drink. Well, obviously you take your mask off. And if you've got COVID, you're all breathing COVID. Uh, and, you know. It's <laughs> Look, it's an absolute nonsense. Mm. It's a nonsense. It's all about, you know, we're doing something, not actually doing
3: anything. Exactly. No, exactly right. And stay with us for a moment because we've got lots more to talk about. I want to ask you about the drug uh, plans that the government has got. Uh, I also want to ask you about a couple of other bits and pieces as well. Anne Widdekim is here, former Conservative MP, former Minister, of course, former Brexit Party MEP as well. Eminently sensible woman. <laughs> Talk Radio.
4: The home of common sense, permanent, persuasive, profound. The machine code of modern thinking.
5: Now with 0% drift and dither.
3: Radio with an answer for everything. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I supposed to be me that. Definitely isn't me. I don't sound like that. I don't think I do anyway. Maybe I do sound like that. Let's talk to Anne Whitikin once more, and um interesting piece on the front of the um The Times today about uh, the Prime Minister's plans to let ministers throw out legal rulings i mean we're now <laughs> We're now reaching sort of peak boris aren't we where uh, he's going to attack the middle class for taking drugs. Um, I could point him in the direction of a few people um perhaps inside of Downing Street. You might want to think about telling that to. Um, second of all, he's now thinking that he can overrule the legal business now. I'm not a big fan of every judge that walks the land, but, I mean, I think the Prime Minister should reel re- his neck in slightly here, shouldn't he?
5: Well, I don't think that the Prime Minister is saying, and, I mean, there have been various reports about what this means today, I don't think the Prime Minister is saying, just ignore the law, just ignore uh, the judges. I think what he's saying is that um, if there is a, a law that is militating against, for example, free trade, um, or a judgment that that is actually making policy rather than interpreting the face of the act, which is what the judges are meant to do, uh, then in those circumstances, uh, uh, ministers are are, are advised to uh, take another look um, and work out uh, what to do in the face of it. I don't really want to exaggerate what he's saying, um, because I think that it is high time that that we had a, a good look at the way that judges are behaving at the moment, which seems to me quite often, not always, but quite often, to be making law. Rather than intelligent.
3: Yes, I mean, do you worry, like some people do? Peter Hitchens is amongst them. That that we have had since the Tony Blair years a kind of slight reshift, if you like, of our of our establishment. And our establishment now is nothing like what it used to be. The establishment used to be con- considered to be sort of slightly stuffy, you know, slightly kind of, um, I suppose you might describe it as old fashioned, slightly right wing. Now it's kind of completely, almost the opposite of that.
5: Yes. Uh, I I think that's true. And I think that both the uh, the civil service uh, and the judiciary now um, can behave in a way that that in the past we would have found unthinkable. And I think this is something that government quietly needs to take a good look at uh, and work out how to get the power back where it should belong, which is with Parliament, not with the government, Mm. but Parliament. That is to say, what government places has to be approved by Parliament.
3: Well, this is, again, back to what was going on at the weekend, you know, announcements made on a Saturday, you know, press conferences on a Sunday. I mean, Boris Johnson acts as though he doesn't think Parliament's terribly important.
5: Well, Parliament must be able to ratify or to throw out whatever he does, but the problem is with the COVID regulations, for example, um, you know, they've got an awful lot of power just delegated to them, um, which they can keep for some months before it has to be uh, revisited. Mm. Uh, and I'm actually at the point now where I think, as I thought last time this came up for review, that's it. They've had those powers. The emergency is largely over. Uh, now, every single thing they do must be approved. Maybe in retrospect, I'm not saying they shouldn't be able to take emergency action. But in retrospect, must be
3: approved by Parliament. Yeah, and you're a former prisons minister, Anne. Um, what do you yeah. make? What do you make of the uh, the middle class sort of drug crackdown? Because I think it's no secret, and everybody knows that there's been a middle class drug problem in this country for for many decades, really. Um, but the prison population is also full of people who are on drugs. Is it not? I mean, is what's your yes. what's your kind of take on the situation regarding drugs? I mean, it's almost an impossible battle, isn't it?
5: Now, I don't believe it is an impossible battle. And I mean, I'm interested that Boris is now using the rhetoric that I used 20 years ago mm. uh, and was roundly scorned by various members of the Conservative Party for doing so. Uh, when I said 20 years ago that it is demand which fuels supply and that one person's recreation is another person's deprivation. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, it's all very well at middle class dinner parties to be having a a, a quick sniff of campaign uh, of cocaine and saying, oh, you know, isn't this wonderful. Mm. But that supplier who has supplied them is also supplying the poor on council estates who steal in order to get the money to fund a habit, uh, which has come about through that circle of demand and supply. Mm. Boris has just woken up to this. Yippee. Perhaps now government as a whole will wake up to this and introduce what I suggested at the time, which is a complete zero-tolerance policy of drugs, all the way up from supply of hard drugs down to demand for the soft drugs.
3: But how do you stop the drugs from being distributed? I mean, it was said during the lockdown that you could actually get a delivery of cocaine faster than you could get a pizza.
5: Oh, you probably could. Um, the problem is there's no real will here. If you look at what Giuliani did in New York, Um, He just said, right, there is zero tolerance. this." What happens here is you will pass a gathering on a street corner and all the local taxi drivers and anybody else tell you, oh, they know what's going on there. That's drugs. Mm. And yet a police car passing by doesn't stop. Yeah. And there's got to be a a real will to deal with this. And that is why I did propose uh, on the spot penalties uh, for people caught with small amounts uh, of soft drugs. Yeah. But once you get to a larger amount, they say, oh, it's my supply for three months. You must say, no, it isn't. It's substantial mm. possession, and that's equivalent to supply. Because right. Almost certainly, if you've got a large amount, you've got it for somebody else.
3: But then, of course, people will say, well, you can't lock them all up because there's only room in the prisons.
5: Yeah, I haven't suggested you lock them all up. I've suggested uh, uh, fixed penalties, but I certainly think you should lock up the suppliers. And what is more, we need to do, and yes, it does involve considerable investment and a lot of police time what Giuliani did in New York was they would take out a supplier and inevitably somebody else would come in Mm. and fill the wealth. So they take him out uh, and and then him out. And eventually the word gets out amongst the drug dealers. That place is just too hot. You know, don't bother with it. Now, unless we put that sort of effort in we're never going to get on
3: top of the drugs problem. Never. No, I think you're absolutely right. Fascinating stuff, though. Uh, great to talk to you, Anne, as ever. If I don't see you or speak to you before, have a great Christmas. Um, and maybe the cruise thing will work out. Who knows? Uh, whatever you're doing, whatever you're seeing and hearing, we need to hear from you as well, of course. 0344 499 1000. Anne Woodicombe there talking about the crackdown on drugs, why it needs to happen. Uh, we'd like to know what you think about that. But also, what is going on uh, with this ridiculous crackdown On this variant, which has so far killed not one person.
5: Not one. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Coming up in a little while, I'm going to be telling you about the gender bread, uh, which is the new thing, apparently. It's a bit like gingerbread, except it's obviously gender neutral. (laughs) So it's not a gingerbread man, uh, or indeed a gingerbread woman. It's a gender bread. What's wrong with that, you might say? Nothing, I suppose. Uh, but I'm a bit confused. We'll be getting to that in a moment. Let's talk to Simon a travellers of the independent, a man that knows more than anyone has ever remembered about the travel business he's probably been the busiest man uh, over the course of the last 12 months than anyone else uh, and he's currently i believe uh, in isolation waiting for the results of a test that he has done simon a very good morning to you uh
4: yes in fact um, i'm not sure that that description is entirely right i'm sure i heard your producers just say cheap and available but um here i am anyway <laughs> No, that was me that i um, are talking about <laughs> <laughs> obviously uh, yes uh in splendid isolation and that's because um, i came back on saturday uh morning first thing from florida uh-huh. I, it's over 48 hours since i took a test for which i have paid 55 quid but frankly Collinson, the testing company's got me cash so what do they care yeah um, well this is the and- worry isn't it that people have got this kind of you know very relatively
3: limited window in many cases, you go on holiday, you come back you expect to go back to work whenever you want to go back, say a couple of days later but you're sitting there, um, we've got a guy who works here who can't get out uh, of his house because the test is now six days late
4: Crikey. Yes, it's uh, it's not great. Um, and then, yes, as you have been revealing and I was so interested in your discussion with Julia Hartley Brewer mm. just before 10. Yeah. Um, you know, you're in a really, really tricky position and it's absolutely miserable because of what happened at the weekend. Yeah. And just to remind everybody what the score is now um, on top of last weekend's announcement which is the one that i'm suffering from at the moment because uh, i wasn't expecting to have to right. self-isolate till my um uh, post-arrival co- uh, covid test arrives mm. you also need to take a pre-departure test and that is causing an awful lot of upset partly because of course it's it's more cost more complexity that you can really do without and um you know i don't imagine anybody on their 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 uh, um, holiday or their trip to see family wants to be messing around finding a, a suitable test but also as you said the uh, the, the risk that you could test positive abroad mm. now some of your lovely listeners will be shouting at the radio saying well quite right too we don't want anybody getting on a plane if mike's M- mike or somebody in his family's uh, got a touch of covid then um then keep him there lock him up throw away the key <laughs> um but of course,
3: but also lots of other people are saying, uh, hang on a minute, this variant that we speak of is already here. So the idea that you're somehow doing this in order to stop the variant from infecting the country
4: is already a nonsense. Oh, sure. Well, we, we I mean, talking of nonsense, how much would you like, Mike? Well, listen, um, I'm we ready had... for
3: as much as you can give me, because I re- I thought you wrote a fantastic piece yesterday, which I read with great interest. Your actual guide to what the, 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 the regulations are. Very uh, extensive, very easy to understand. But a lot of it's
4: mad, isn't it? Uh, well, it's all completely mad. So, for example, um, there's, I've just been in touch with somebody who's going off on Friday for a trip to Paris for the weekend. Very nice indeed. Mm. Um, and uh, they, uh, don't, they, they can take their test before they leave the UK. This is the test that is supposed to tell whether or not you've picked up the Omicron yes. uh, variant <laughs> in Paris. Right. Well, no, because you can legally... Well, uh, uh, take your test yeah. before you go. Well one of the things I think that was I think it was
3: in your piece that I read it that if you were going on a day trip to Lapland, you've got to take a test to go to Lapland. We've also before you go to take a test to come back because you've been coming back before the period under which you could have taken the test over there. So you're kind of going, Right, so I'm taking two tests. Both of them cost money. One of them is gonna be presumably exactly the same as the other. Why why not you just use one?
4: Uh, yeah, well because um uh because you must and uh we we got an interesting explanation for this from the uh, deputy prime minister dominic Raab mm. yesterday he said all these measures are really necessary because we've got we've we've um protected um 80 of the population if i can take you back um two months the transport secretary grant Sharp says we're able to ease off traveling because we've got 80 percent of people vaccinated yeah. for goodness sake um yeah, well, it, I can it, I can beat I
3: can do better than that. I can take you back uh, to the beginning. I think of December, uh, which was not that long ago, in which Grant Shapps supposedly said, um, "We won't be reintroducing pre-departure tests
4: because it would ruin the travel industry." Oh, sure. He was he, uh, it's exactly right. And thank you for that, Mike. He was um, having a go at Labour. And yeah. to be absolutely fair, um, Labour want to close down what used to be the world's greatest travel industry, even more than the Conservatives, mm. if that's
3: possible. I'd quite like to um, close down the Labour Party, if that's the right view. <laughs>
4: I'm not sure that you could do that, although I'm sure they're looking at uh, changing the law so that you can, Mike.
3: Well, listen, they're trying their best to do it by themselves without any help from me. So, you know, let's see how that all goes. But so my interest in this is entirely uh, selfish, of course, but it it does help other people as well. So I'll ask you this. We're supposed to be getting some kind of announcement, I believe,
4: on the 9th, which is Thursday. What What do you think that will be? Oh, I'm not expecting an announcement on the 9th. I was expecting an announcement on the 18th. Yes. And that's now been delayed till the 20th. Has it? Uh, yeah. Oh, God. Um, well, but, then, but, I mean, I mean that, yeah, that's well, even
3: worse news for me, because my, my plan was to fly on the 20th, right? Um, and I'm fairly yeah. I'm, I'm about 99.9% sure that it can't be done now, and I'm not going to bother. But I thought uh, if I was to really sort of, you know, sort of take the gauntlet, if you like, or run the gauntlet, even... Um, by you know, two days before, on the 18th, I could tell my boss whether or not I'm going to be here. I yep. could tell my family whether or not I'm coming. We could then try and organise testing if they somehow made everything better. But I don't really feel as though anything good is going to be said on the 18th. But now
4: it's oh. not going to be said at all. Uh, well, it, it's not going to be said on the 18th. It's certainly not. Good, um, uh, but um, it might be said on the 20th. I, look, for goodness sake, you absolutely desperately need to um, take your family to see your... your, your I do. Uh, elderly mother and i I don't think anything should stand in the way of that uh i can absolutely understand your concern that the rules will change and that is really at the heart of Mm. why this is so destructive to the economic health of the travel industry um and to the emotional health of people in your position who Mm. just desperately want to see people yeah i mean
3: honestly i know that some people will say well he's all right for you but it's not actually really a holiday. I mean, you know, I'll be going to see my family. I'm trying to arrange to get everybody in the same room for the first time in more than two years, really. Um, and it's just not going to ha- I just don't think it's going to happen. It can't happen. You know, and I'm, I'm sort of resigned to that now, because if that is the true, what you've just said, I can't wait till the 20th, which is when they're
4: going to announce something, because I'll be in, on a plane. Well, I mean, they say that they're not going to announce anything till then. But obviously, um, they said... Last weekend, they were going to announce something on the 18th, and then they announced something, what, on the 4th? Mm. Um. So uh, would you believe, would you believe not absolutely everything the government says turns out to be the case? And just on that, if I may, mm. uh, we had Sajid Javid... Um, and the government press release on Saturday saying you've got to take the uh, uh, coming home test 48 hours before you leave. And that's nonsense. Um, the law that he signed says it has to be three days beforehand. So um, they can't even get their stories no. straight on and what I'm, the new I mean, rules was, are that they're telling us to obey.
3: And I was thinking that surely to heavens they're going to have to make a few... Um, clarifications this week if nothing else because it's not clear for example what the pre-departure test is is it one that you take with you uh, and then do while you're abroad is it something you you do locally is it is it a particular kind uh, of test
4: i mean what is the answer to all of those questions Well, luckily i can help you and luckily the answer is um that it's really really kind of anything you want to it that isn't an nhs test right so um, I mean, the, the, the motto for the government right now is let's test again like we did last summer mm. um, and uh, testing time is here. Uh, the uh, if you recall in the summer for the pre-departure test that we had to take from May till September, it was all right to take out a self-administered test. So you take a, you, you've got your um, passport, you've got your test result, you take a, a selfie of, of those things and then you send it in and you get a nice certificate that you can then give to the uh, yeah. uh nice gentleman or lady on so the airline without
3: captain. putting too fine a point on it simon and without admitting anything
4: uh, as indeed we never do um it's something that you could bodge well um there has been talk of asking next next door's cat to uh, take the test which i would never condone no it has to be done everyone has to follow the rules and um you must not harm any um Uh, domestic pets in the in the taking of these tests okay um so so that's all right i've even heard i I was in touch with a a, a couple from tennessee over the weekend and they went along to their local walgreens which Mm. was doing testing and the um uh, assistant there said um oh okay have you got any health insurance and they said well no because we're brits and they said oh that's all right we'll give you the test we'll give you a certificate for nothing Mm. um So that's that's a possibility, too. But, yes, I mean, it is fair to say that a number of people will be taking self-administered tests out to the U.S. By the way, they are not valid for getting to the U.S., uh, you, you've got to have a sort of properly professionally administered one. But then getting back onto the plane, that I, is, I think, how they will do it. But there is no escape, the PCR test on mm. day two, which is misnomer, because I thought I'm going to get straight off this plane. I'm going to go straight round to the testing centre mm. in a muddy car park just north of the airport. Um, and I'll take my test immediately because I'm going to get out. Um, and um, unfortunately, that hasn't quite uh, well, happened yet. But I'll tell you so, something you're, about you're... that
3: because we looked into that as well because we would have been arriving back on the 30th uh, just after 8 o'clock. The testing centre at Heathrow doesn't uh, is no longer open after 8 o'clock so you can't get the test that night. We also looked into what you suggested which was to get the same day test like an hour and a half you get the result. Do you know how much they want for it? 400 quid.
4: Oh. But you're worth it, 100. I'm sure. We, we, look, everybody. Yeah, but listened. no, the rest of my family let's, let's isn't worth it. This. Yeah,
3: but the rest of my family isn't. I'm not paying 1,600 quid to get them all out, you know. But they're all going, well, why don't you just drive us home? We don't want to wait around for an hour and a half. You know, so all of these little things, which seem to be little, are conglomerating into a massive problem.
4: Well, um, certainly, if you did want to uh, think, okay, well, we've got the best aviation industry, fantastic uh, package holiday industry. Um, We've got the best value, the most choice, the lowest fares, um, highest safety. That's fantastic. Um, Now let's destroy it. Well, you. absolutely couldn't do better than uh, the government we've got at the moment and not only is it causing immense grief for travel agents and this morning i don't imagine there have been too many people marching at the travel agents saying oh yeah um over the weekend we decided we'd like to take a christmas or new year hmm. holiday can you fix one up for us i'm afraid there will just be people saying can you explain the new rules um and or can we postpone or cancel yeah. our trip?
3: And that's the other thing that I was going to ask you is what is normally seen as the sort of uh, cancellation period? Because most of the airlines, and I think in my case, the airline we've booked with will, will give us a voucher or we can move the dates and all that. It's not a big problem. But uh, they might have some view on how, how late you can go before you cancel. Is there a rule on that or is it just up to no, the it, individual airline?
4: Well, I mean, one of the rare good things i guess which has come out of the covid crisis is that travel companies are now prepared to give you much more flexibility and it ranges really from you know you've got to tell us a month beforehand which is pretty useless because a month in the time of coronavirus is like seven cat years or something um but uh other other airlines i mean british airways says you can cancel for a voucher anytime time up to Close of check-in, which is an hour before the flight, which is very generous, Mm. Um, although they're hanging on to your money, um, of course, and uh, you will need to spend that on another British Airways flight.
3: Yes, and I think in in, in all cases, if if the the time you choose to fly at another time, if it's more expensive at that time, you have to pay the extra money, don't you?
4: well in in general yes and uh other other airlines are quite you know very strict about um what the what the options are but that's the sort of thing for which a, a good travel agent will be able to tell you well here's the deal if you need to mm. um, uh, cancel or change
3: yes yeah. so what have you been told about your test and when you're likely to expect to see
4: the result well i've, I've tweeted the uh, company and said oh you told me 48 hours that's up right. um and um uh, so far no response so, Excellent. i mean that uh, they, they uh, <laughs> the, the, the more you look on social media, Mike, the more you find. Oh, okay. Oh, you booked through them, did you? Uh, first of all, you're an idiot because um, I went with this company. Mm. Um, and it took eleven hours and cost half of what you paid. Right. Um, and, and secondly, if you really need to get out quick, then there's a, a much faster one. But that will probably be the one that you w- that wanted yeah. four hundred of your um, valuable pound notes, Mike. And, and isn't um,
3: there isn't there a twenty four hour sort of testing centre at any airport in Britain? Because there surely should be, shouldn't there?
4: well that, that look that, there is mountains of money to be made so when i went into the testing center there were just dozens and dozens of people milling around mm. it was a real multinational party it was mm. like the united nations it sounds like a good place uh, to catch covid oh oh yeah absolutely yes um very very little social distancing um but um you know uh we were all milling around and um Crikey, that, that, i i hate to think how much money per hour they were making but it was a lot yeah, and um, you yeah, know i mean it doesn't make any difference to them if if, I, if i'm stuck for a bit longer and um uh, so they i'm sure they'll tell me when they're good and ready uh, but i will be um, casting a careful mm. eye on the annual accounts of all the testing companies when they Good produce man. their profit figures, which, unlike the travel industry, I expect to be very handsome. <laughs> yes, well, I shall be
3: te- keeping an eye on your Twitter account to see how it's all going and uh, wish you uh, all the best, Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Calder, the travel editor of The Independent, he himself stuck in isolation because the testing company that was supposed to return the testing result to him within 48 hours hasn't managed to do it. And this is the problem. So if you're working for yourself, like many people do, and you only get paid to work when you go to work, if you're stuck inside, you're not making any money. So not only are you having to hand over more money to these appallingly greedy testing companies, you can't actually get any money coming in. So it's absolute
0: shambles, isn't it?
1: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Talk radio. A new lineup for a new generation. Essential, edgy, engaging. Advanced
3: postulation for any
4: angry nation.
6: Ask for it by name. Talk radio. The home of common sense.
3: Let us talk about something called the gender-bred person. Now, I kid you not. This has been launched apparently uh, because uh, this is part of government department training, and what it does is it shows you a picture of a gender bred person now if you haven't seen this yet uh, you will be fascinated to see what it shows what it shows is um, what looks like a gingerbread man but it's not a man or a woman because it's gender neutral Uh, and it's got a little uh, brain at the top where it says identity it's got a heart which it says is attraction Uh, it's got something sort of going around the outside of the body which says expression and then the most confusing bit of all uh, is the bit in between the gender bred sorry The gender what? What's it called? Gender-bred person? Yeah, the gender-bred person. And it's got sort of the sex organs bit, which I'd have to say is quite confusing, even for somebody like me. It seems to have three different sort of symbols. It's got the little plus, it's got the little arrow, which is male and female. Then it's got this other thing, uh, which is an arrow with a sort of a line over it. Now, apparently that's supposed to represent intersex. Now, I don't really understand what intersex means, I'm sorry if that means I'm an idiot, but here's the definition. Intersex people are individuals born uh, without, with any of the several sex characteristics, including chromosome patterns, gonads, gonads, or genitals, that according to the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, do not fit typical binary notions of male or female bodies. So you can't really opt to be intersex, by the sounds of it, I don't think. You either are or you're not. I thought gonads was a sort of slang term. I didn't know there was actually gonads. I mean, there's a lot, obviously, I don't know about this stuff. But the genderbread person, uh, I'm sure, tastes very similar to a gingerbread man. I've never seen a gingerbread woman, so I don't know what they taste like. But, I mean, it's all a bit mad, isn't it? I'll send out the, uh, the tweet. It's on the Talk Radio Twitter page. Genderbread person. Anyway, can you imagine sitting around uh, the Christmas table? Can you pass the gingerbread, uh, persons, please? <laughs> not really. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Good morning. I'd like to say greetings of the season, but I'm not entirely sure uh, whether that would be at all appropriate, given that we haven't yet been told whether it is the season to be merry uh, or indeed the season uh, to be not very merry at all.
7: Well, actually, it's the season of Advent, which is a season of, 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 of penitence and of, of, of abstinence.
3: Sounds about right.
7: Anybody cares about these things. So don't you worry about that. You're supposed to be gloomy.
3: Well, well, the only thing anybody knows about Advent now is that everybody wants an Advent calendar. But They don't actually know what Advent really means, do they? <laughs> uh, well,
7: you can speak for yourself there. I have to say I have a detailed knowledge of it.
3: Well, um, you have a detailed knowledge of devours. many, but you have a detailed knowledge of many things, Peter, that I don't know about. So that doesn't well, surprise are. me the slightest. <laughs> so, I mean, is, it, is every single day that you uncover the the, the, the the next bit of chocolate? Does every single day have a residence then, or or a thing that you're supposed to do?
7: Well, I'm sorry, I, it's it's quite a while since I, I, I had an advent calendar, and the, the advent calendars in my childhood didn't have chocolate in them because it it kind of defeats the point, right? Of being a period of penitence and fasting, doesn't it?
3: Well, I suppose so, unless the idea of the chocolate is that you, you're you supposed to hoard it all and eat it all at the end.
7: Well, in that case, why put it in the calendar? I yeah. mean, we could go on about this for some time, but I, basically <laughs> there is a huge contradiction between the Christian understanding of the season of Advent and what actually happens in the world, mm. which is as it should be. And our point about Christianity is that it is different from from what most people regard as normality, and it's, it's had a long period of being sort of vaguely socially accepted, and it's now unpopular, which is probably good for any religion to be unpopular.
3: Yes, I think so. It does not help by the fact that the people running the religion, and certainly in this country, don't appear to have much of a belief, as you've often said, in God.
7: (laughs) I mean, if I thought people were interested, we could spend a long time discussing that, but... Well, maybe we, should, the, maybe we the, should the, do, maybe, we, maybe we should
3: do maybe we maybe we should do a sort of as well. maybe we should do a sort of special Christmas Peter Hitchens message um, when we get a bit closer to the witching hour, as it were. Let's talk what instead you then. About,
7: go, you want to lose your listenership <laughs> entirely?
3: <laughs> Let's talk instead then about the efficacy or otherwise of government ministers sitting in tanks, which I rather enjoyed you
5: writing <laughs> about this weekend. Yeah.
7: Well, I, this is the, the continuing campaign to, to, to turn Liz Truss into some kind of national figure. And a few weeks ago, she was posing in a, in a, in a, in a pilot's helmet, a jet pilot's mm. helmet, uh, which she had no business to wearing. She hadn't been flying in one, and she couldn't, uh, she, she couldn't fly in one anyway. Uh, shortly afterwards, I have to say, this is, this is uh, I think, aboard HMS Queen Elizabeth, the world's largest floating target. Uh, one of those very aircraft tumbled into the sea. Unfortunately, uh, fortunately, without its pilots, uh, they're still hunting for it. So whether this is the effect that Liz Truss has on military equipment, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what happens to the tiny number of <laughs> remaining British tanks hmm. in one of which she sat in Estonia last week. Being photographed, and this is a very important part of the story, being photographed by uh, an official Downing Street photographer uh, paid by the taxpayer, hmm. uh, a shocking thing. When David Cameron tried to introduce such a, such a, a, a person on the public payroll uh, ten years ago, he was he, he was laughed out of it, had to abandon it. Mm. This government seems to have got away with that without any trouble. I find it quite shocking. Uh, apparently, I don't know, uh, but normal photographers weren't even present at uh, this event mm. in, in Estonia, whereas the, the the Thatcher tank event, with, with which it's being compared, was uh, was full of press. I was there myself. I saw her. Mm. Yeah, we all gasp.
3: That's right. But that's the thing. I mean, this government does seem to sort of ride roughshod pretty much over everything. I was talking to Anne Whittacombe earlier on about the business of announcing things now on a Saturday, two Saturdays in a row, which must be terribly exciting for you guys that work on Sunday newspapers. Oh, when, that's thrilling, uh, yeah. However... news
7: happens on Saturdays, you will have
3: noticed. Yeah, right. But I mean, you know, I've just seen, funnily enough, I'm talking about people wearing the wrong gear. I just saw Boris Johnson on the news a minute ago uh, wearing a hat which had police written on it um, and a jacket that said police on it and it's like he's out obviously making some point or other but I don't know why he has to wear a hat that makes out he's in the police, he's not in the police everybody knows that, he's just pretending he's in the police
7: no, I, must, I must look that one out I, but it, it, it is bizarre, I think you know, this is impersonating a police officer isn't
3: it? Well I would have thought so
7: I am supposed to do it
3: well, he's impersonating the Prime Minister I the I as well. Either or, 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 he's,
7: or he's doing stripograms.
3: Well he's, well, he's impersonating the Prime Minister as well. But I mean, oh, well, yeah. he doesn't seem to think that anybody um, should be asking him any questions he doesn't like answering. He, Prime Minister's questions have turned into nothing at all, really, because no matter what is said, he doesn't answer any questions. He doesn't kind of um, appear to give a monkey's about the travel business, which he's now just decimated again. Um, and it's just, you know, one thing after another, isn't it?
7: Well, this, but this is all the fruit of the Blairite period. There was a time when you could. I I used to go to them, particularly during elections. You'd go to prime ministerial press conferences and you could ask the prime minister or the leader of the opposition a question in front of people, uh, uh, not as a a selected member of the elite uh, nomenclatura uh, media, the the, the tiny number of approved television senior political artists, but as a as a normal political reporter. And expect to be answered. Mm. But uh, Alistair Campbell realized that this is an extremely bad idea from the point of view of the politicians. And so he put a stop to it. Yeah. And that the, there are, it's fascinating, there are, during general elections, there are no more press conferences. They, they, they've, they've simply stopped happening. Mm. The Tory party saw this and realized that it was great for them, too. And this is another thing. I, you possibly remember, I can't even remember what the subject was. But it came out that Blair had told his aides to to discover and uh, manufacture an eye-catching initiative with which he could personally be associated, Mm. uh, which always seemed to me to be a perfect summary of most of the things which government comes up with. It's called manipulative populism. You get on with what your real agenda is, uh, which is presumably um, doing what your big donors ask you to do, uh, and all the the general politically correct stuff which all governments are committed to. And then you make these, these pretended uh, populist claims to be doing things about drugs or immigration. So you, you, you say, Pretty Patel makes her latest announcement about pushing people backwards in the channel, of course, which never happens. No. Uh, or Theresa May sends her ridiculous van around the streets of North London saying that immigrants will be caught and removed, which, of course, will never happen. And mm. Now you go to this, this, this bilge-crammed announcement this morning about how the government is going to be cracking down on drugs. Whenever you hear the, the expression, crackdown then you know that what everything that follows and proceeds is, is garbage. Right. It, 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 nothing will happen. Right. Also, you find that the, I think the, it, it was described that the police could take away people's driving licenses and passports for being in possession of drugs. Well, they could, uh, but equally well, they could not. Yes. And the truth is, as we know, that the police, being almost totally absent from our lives, will not do this, except maybe in one or two uh, well-publicized, spectacular cases, because they're not interested in enforcing the law. Against drug possession, and they haven't been for about thirty years. No,
3: well, of course, the only place that it's easier to get drugs than it is on a street corner is in prison, uh, where they seem to be absolutely r- rife uh, and brought in in all sorts of different by all sorts of different methods, including well, uh, in inside the sort of innards of dead pigeons thrown over walls and things. I mean, nobody of cares. This,
7: of course, this is so because prisons are full of convicted criminals, and convicted criminals, I have to say, are, 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 are generally a minority of criminals who are uh, the ones who are too slow to run away are uh, the incompetent criminals, the ones who get caught. Uh, and, and, and crime and drugs are, are totally joined at the hip in this country, so it would not, not not be surprising if the country which couldn't enforce its laws on drugs in the outside world also can't enforce it in the mm. places where criminals are most tightly concentrated. Yeah. And they don't. And anyway, it, it, the, the, the sad truth about our prisons is that they are not anything like tightly controlled enough by the authorities. They're left increasingly under the control of the inmates. Mm. Because it's very small numbers of prison officers are available for, for quite large numbers of people in prison. This fascinating thing about prison in this country is that liberal crime policies and belief that people shouldn't go to prison have actually led to our prisons being more crowded than at any time in human history.
3: Right. And, and do, you know,
7: do you know why? Why? Uh, because because if, what we do is, is nobody in this country, unless they actually kill somebody, goes to prison on a first offence probably on a second or third or fourth or fifth offence. And those are the offences which are recorded. Uh, they will also almost certainly have committed something between 10 and 20 other offences which the police haven't even bothered to investigate. But by, by the time anybody gets into prison in this country, they are already a hardened recidivist and the chances of prison making any difference mm. to that is zero. Yeah. But the number of people, the number of these recidivists grows all the time because of the failure of the police to act and the failure of the courts to send people to prison at a time when it might make an impact on them. So you've got an endlessly growing number of people who ought to be in prison uh, and a frantic effort by judges to keep them out. Uh, You just look at the reports of any uh, magistrates or, or, or crown court and see the efforts which the magistrates and judges are making not to send people to prison. Even despite that, uh, the prisons are bulging, and we have to build new ones all the time to, to make way. Because mm. what we've done is we've we've we, we've actually created through liberal criminal justice policies more and more and more crime.
3: Should we then be building more prisons, though, in order well, to not
7: more people? If you build prisons <laughs> it's like the National Health Service; you can carry on spending money on prisons till the end of time. Mm. You would never build enough uh, because the policy is wrong. What we should be doing is confronting people who who behave badly and as as criminals as early as possible. Mm. Uh, Street disorder should be confronted quickly because often people who engage in that become criminals. Mm. But it's not. The police aren't there to confront it. Uh, Vandalism, graffiti, all these things. People learn. uh, This is the, the great broken windows theory of James Q. Wilson. Uh, people learn very quickly that there is no authority in an area. When when you can get away with riding the, the tube without a ticket, when you can get away with, with smashing windows, when you can get away with vandalism, when you can get away with chucking litter on the street, people realize there is no authority. Mm. So it very quickly leads to other, much more serious crime spreading. And this is, what you have to do, and this is what zero tolerance is, is all about, is to, is, is to react very quickly to crime by having people on the, on the spot uh, to, to to deter it. Uh, who can have a quick word with people? You don't need to imprison most people to stop them from going going on with, with lives and disorder and crime if they think there's mm. authority there. But authority is absent. Nobody ever tells anybody off. Uh, this, every crime is excused. Uh, the, the crime of, of, of illegal drug possession is excused. People are, are, are told that they're they're poor, sad addicts who have to be treated. Uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. That we we actually we, we use this in the language. People who are ill. People who people have cancer, they need to be treated. Uh, illness is involuntary. You don't you, you don't you not go out and buy some cancer. Uh, you get it, and, mm. it's, and it's compulsory. And then you can get treated for it. To compare this, to equate it with deliberate criminal acts, is an insult to the ill. And yet we do it all the time. And this this this, this supposed policy today of more treatment for for drug abusers uh, is an absurdity. It's mm. a, it's a moral outrage because it says that people who do something which they know perfectly well to be illegal and wrong. Uh, and then, if not exactly rewarded, certainly let off anything remotely resembling punishment.
3: Yes, and no, I think that's right. Because the trouble is now, you see more and more sort of videos that people shoot of somebody turning up outside their house and, and basically just getting some, some bolt cutters out and, and stealing motorbikes or stealing bicycles or whatever. They, they have no. I think, I've, I think I've even seen one with an angle grinder where they're literally, you know, they're just grinding through padlocked bikes and taking them and just riding off on them because they know that they can.
7: Well, they know that the police will not do anything. Yeah. And they, the, the, the official crime figures such as they are um, are constantly massaged down by simply declassifying large numbers of yeah. crimes. So that they, they, they simply don't bother to pursue them. And so people don't report them. Uh, and in some parts of, of the country, I'm sure it's very, very difficult to get insurance for anything portable. Because people know that yeah. it, will, it will simply be stolen and nothing will
0: happen, mm. and the, the misery of people living in those
7: areas is considerable. Mm. But under the current system, there is no rescue coming their way at all. As I say, the prisons are disastrous. They're not; they don't have any any effect at all on, re, on reducing crime. And they're, they're, the, the, the most terrifying thing about them is the, the fate of innocent people who are incarcerated in them, uh, in places which, are by and large, run by criminals. It's yes. that, a horrifying thing that any other person should be in such a place, but I'm afraid it does happen.
3: Yeah, I know. It's dreadful. Stay with me Peter. I'm going to ask you about this variant business and what's been going on and what's likely to happen between now and Christmas. Um, I'm not at all optimistic, I'm afraid, and as you often said, being pessimistic is a much happier place to be. Uh, We're talking to Peter Hitchens, man on Sunday, Columnist More coming up with Peter next on Talk Radio.
4: Talk Radio. The microeconomics of rational debate. Arguments all round. The radio station. Not a panic station.
5: Translate and decode the issues of the moment. Talk Radio. Now available on TV.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Peter Hitchens. I don't know whether you saw, uh, Peter, there's a bit of a video going around um, from Manchester where two police officers are attempting to arrest somebody for not wearing a mask in a shop, uh, which it appears is not actually something they can do. But this is the kind of confusion that's been caused by these kind of uh, rather ludicrous measures that the government's introduced.
7: No, I haven't seen that. I and mean, th- this often, this, this issue often leads to uh, unpleasant confrontations between authority and individuals. It's one of the many things that's, 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 that's wrong with the policy. Mm. But I haven't I haven't seen that. Particularly.
3: Yeah. But what do you make of what they did on Saturday, which is basically to initially? Um, more or less make anyone who's trying to go anywhere uh, make it impossible for them to do so or exceedingly exceedingly expensive I mean we spoke to Simon Calder this morning who just got back from Florida he didn't know that he was going to have to isolate and get himself a test which was due to be delivered in 48 hours he's still waiting 48 hours has passed we know somebody here at the office who's waiting six days later for a day two test to be uh, given as a result and they have to self-isolate now they're asking us to take a test before we come back having been proved negative, to take another test when you get back to say you're still negative and until then you can't go out.
7: Well, I love some of the people who impose these these rules to explain exactly what good they do. But what's fascinated me over the past week Mm. is the readiness of people who are in favour of closing down society to rush to extreme measures as soon as they possibly can without any evidence. uh, my side, you know, I've constantly told her, you're not experts, you don't know anything, you're not scientists, and I say, well, of course I'm not a scientist, and I, I listen to those who are, and the whole point about science is that it's, it, it needs data to decide what the truth is. Mm. Now, it's quite clear that the, the data which we have on the new variant is very slender, yeah. and this is repeatedly stated by people on, who, who are in favour of these events. And the other day, the Guardian how is front page headline something I more or less on the lines of uh, experts say, don't wait for data, act right now. Well, if they're experts, surely <laughs> their job is to wait. For right. Data. Well, that's uh, the, right. The, the man who popularized the scientific method most in this country was the fictional detective Sherlock Holmes, uh, who was based on a very clever doctor who deduced illness from, from careful study and experimentation. And he and he always used to say in, 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 in the Sherlock Holmes stories that, the, that to theorize without data, was a capital error, which it is. You can't have it both ways. You can't jeer at people like me and say we are not experts, uh, which, I don't, which I don't claim to be. And then, when expertise is needed, not even wait for it to be deployed to decide what to do. Either our policy is driven uh, by expertise and careful thought and an understanding of the situation, or it is not. If it is, then surely we must wait for data uh, before acting, uh, unless there's some obvious tremendous emergency, which mm. it just does not seem to be in terms of the the, the figures of deaths and hospital admissions, which are as near as you can get uh, in the statistics on COVID to anything like mm-hmm. hard information. Uh, there's, there's still some distance away from it, in my
3: view. But this is the peril, it seems to me of listening to experts scientific or otherwise um, who seek to predict things and who say well you must do this in order to stop something from happening and you and I started our argument many moons ago because uh, I said the only reason for the lockdown was to stop the overwhelming of the NHS to which you said yeah but you'll never know whether that would have happened or not because it didn't happen and you don't know whether by doing whatever it was that they did that was what stopped it.
7: Quite right. And of course, we now do know from the, the, the example of Sweden in particular. Yeah, but uh, not taking the stats, which we, took, we, did, we did, did not have the catastrophic mm. results, which were th- which which were threatened by the various uh, prophets and uh, crystal ball readers who, uh, who got the ear of the government in that. In,
3: in that right. But we're now told, though, um, that the reason that Boris is acting now is that he was criticised for not acting fast enough the last time. And so we're literally doing government policy for the future by looking at what happened in the past.
7: Oh, well, of course. I mean, you could understand that, can't you? It's a, a, lot of, a lot of bad acts by government, are completely understandable. If if it all did go wrong, he'd be blamed for it and he'd possibly have to resign. Mm. So you can see why he would. But it seems to me to be the job of people in, in, in power who seek spend their entire lives seeking the highest responsibilities in the land to have a bit more guts than that.
3: Yes. And it also seems to me that people are beginning to ask the question, you know, if he's going to wait until the 20th of December to do the next kind of statement publicly, whatever uh, that is going to be. Um, It's literally three days before Christmas, effectively. um, And people are asking me the question, what gives him the right to to determine what sort of Christmas we can all have?
7: Well, I'm sorry to say that two things give him that right. One is that people voted for his party and put him in office. And the other is that when his government began in the spring of 2020 to impose authoritarian measures unjustified by the circumstances, very few people spoke up against it. So he has enormously increased uh, the power which he was actually given by law in the first place. And there's no point complaining about it now. Uh, This is what people licensed when they sat and let it happen. In the spring of 2020, there should have been more criticism. Mm. We're supposed to have a civil society. We're supposed to have public opinion. We're supposed to have independent media. We're supposed to have a a, a parliamentary opposition. We're supposed to have independent MPs who can speak out. None of these things actually perform the task for which we, 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 we rely on them. And so we are now living in a society where we have almost no power over him. So that's where he gets the right from. He has it. Uh, and and, the, 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 and
3: he's not going to give it up, is the, he?
7: Count, count yourself lucky. He's got that ghastly man who's who's Prime Minister of um, of, of Victoria in Australia. Yeah. Right. Uh, it could be even worse. Yeah, well, you know, that's, 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 out, that's,
3: that's tragically impossible. the truth. It, it could be worse because it is a lot worse than an awful lot of other places. However, um, how do we get out of it then?
7: Uh, I don't think we ever will. I think that we, we, we will live with some level of this sort of interference in our lives the rest of our days because this is what when when freedom dies... It dies. You can't, it, it won't, it's not like a, it's a perennial plant that dies in the winter and comes up again in the spring. If you if you don't look after it, if you don't tend it and, and, and preserve it from the many threats to it, it won't come back again. And there is no spirit in this country of, uh, of freedom. If, if, if Magna Carta were abolished tonight because of COVID, if people say, well, Magna Carta is a real threat to COVID, we have to strike it off the statute mm. book, I should think there'd be very very little the way of protest or the Bill of Rights. But those who have heard of them uh, who are now a minority uh, probably wouldn't do much about it. And I would shout and scream and stamp my little feet. But what difference would that make? As we know, zero. Mm. So get used to it. This is what you licensed. This is what you asked for, and now you're getting it. So, well, now you've
3: thoroughly depressed uh, me. I mean, you made course, me laugh you last.
7: Week. Asked me to
3: you made me laugh last week. Now you just, you know, you just upset well, I'm me. To make you laugh
7: now. I mean, <laughs> it is quite funny. Here we, here we are, the great, the, you know, the, the great arsenal of freedom, the country which has been shouting about how it saved, saved the world from tyranny. Uh, all those, all those years ago. Uh, the slightest puff of wind from an authoritarian government, we all lie down mm. and, and bang our foreheads on the uh, on the ground, saying "Hail to thee, great leader." I've never seen anything so mm. pathetic in my life, but we did it, and here we are. We we, we have to live with it. Mm. I should be dead soon, so it's not a big big problem for me. But uh, so that's why I can I can laugh about it more. The, 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 all yeah. the poor guys are going to be around for decades and decades. Of it. I'm I'm sorry for you. But,
3: I know. Uh, well, I feel, I feel I feel bad for my kids. Actually, is the main thing. But Peter, listen. Great to talk to you as ever. Peter Hitchens, a Mental Sunday columnist, of course, a soothsayer, a man who speaks the truth, uh, a man who also predicted all of this, I have to say, uh, even in the days when I was disagreeing with him. It's not very, um, not very cheery, really, is it? Merry Christmas.
4: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's talk now to John Jolly, CEO of Parent Kind. John, very good afternoon to you.
6: Yes, good afternoon. Thanks very,
3: <coughs> thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, obviously this is such an awful story that it sort of pains me even to talk about it, but talk about it, we must, I think. Um, when the sentences were handed down last week, um, they were thought to be quite quite long and, and it looked as though the judge had taken it quite seriously, but for an awful lot of people, uh, as I say, including um, the Julian Knight MP, they're not long enough and some people think they should not be
6: allowed out. What do you think? Um Yeah, I mean, I think this is a truly, truly, truly horrendous case. And I think, you know, representing parent kinds, all parents will be completely shocked. In fact, all of us are completely shocked. I mean, I've been involved in... in 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 criminal justice um parent services for for betting on for 30 years and you know i've never been as shocked as i have by this case
7: yeah.
6: um you yeah, know so i think actually the government has to have a review if it wants longer sentences unfortunately it has to it has to go back and probably change the education legis- legislation because judges have to operate within the guidelines um that they are they are set but certainly it's something that uh You know, I think needs to be seriously, seriously looked at.
3: Yes, I mean the sentences so far are that Emma Tustin was jailed for 29 years, I think minimum. Uh, Thomas Hughes 21 years for manslaughter. I mean, it's unusual to get that length of sentence. So I I was kind of quite, I don't encourage is not the right word, but I mean, I was, I was quite happy with that. Um, But I suppose if you're a member of the family, like Peter Halcrow is this morning, talking to the son, he's his grandfather of Arthur, saying, you know. why did this happen? How could it have happened? Why didn't nobody safeguard my grandson? And and why are these people ever going to be allowed out? And I can see his point.
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I think in terms of the sentences, I think the sentences reflect the seriousness of the crime. Um, um, I, you know, but I, th- I think as a society we have to decide what. You know how how we deal with these crimes, and actually, that's something for for, for politicians mm. and us as a society to decide. I think there are big questions, though, around actually why were not the warning signs sort of like heard in this? Because it seems to me that just reading the case before I came on, um, yeah, you know, there are very there are very very clear warning signs in relation to this, mm. which actually were not acted upon. Um, by key organizations, and we 've already seen the announcement of of a review across a number of government organizations um, uh, local government organizations from the police, social services um, and the and the probation service. so I think there are big questions to 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 answer by mm. those authorities and, and sadly it 's big questions again after a whole range of serious uh, events just like this one pretty much over the last 20 or 30 years. So we somehow are not fixing a system that's letting young people down.
3: Mm. I mean, thankfully, they're very few and far between, but it doesn't make it any less uh, serious. And it doesn't make it any more um, easy to deal with, does it? Because it's always the same story, it seems to me that, you know, yes, there should have been signs that were spotted. Yes, there were visitations made. Yes, there were some people making reports out but somehow i always remember the the baby p case that it was astonishing to me that the social workers were kind of fooled into thinking that the chocolate smears on on the little boy's face um were not hiding bruises and you just think well how can you if you're doing that sort of job how can you be that naive
6: yeah i think i think it's a very it's you know it's 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 very it's very difficult to see from it's very difficult to see from the context of um you know this is one of hundreds of hundreds of cases mm. that social services will be dealing with but i think in this case there were some very clear signs that seems, you know that, that seemed that actually should have been investigated by the police by social workers you know you've got you've got you've got pictures being sent in of bruising you know at the very least i'm you know i I'm, I'm, I don't know what happened but actually, I, I'd be very—I mean, I can't understand why those—you know—those those injuries were not investigated, hmm. why they were not seen and action taken on it, and it seems to me um, difficult to comprehend that had there been uh, an appro- you know, appropriate, you know, appropriate investigation. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, sp- you know, uh, a conversation with the child and with and actually sort of like actively investigating those injuries, they would not have come to light. But but it's very easy for me to say here, talking to you in hindsight, and also not knowing the full facts about mm. what should, should what should and shouldn't have happened. But but it does seem to me a systemic problem um, of, of of social services really not having the resources they need to fully to do the job Mm. and what happens is that then you set a threshold you know is the is is you know is the level of concern high enough for us to have to act or not yeah um and I've certainly experienced this in other roles when um you know I've with I've made referrals to to local authorities because I'm concerned um that children in contact with my organization um needed support um and they then don't meet that threshold um so again you, you you end up being left holding holding the safeguarding responsibility but with no intention. Yeah.
3: and when you say they don't meet the threshold what does that actually mean
6: so um so a threshold of concern you know is there, Oh, well, is so there
3: they're no, saying it's not serious enough then
6: well basically yes and and actually the older a child you know my, my experience is you know the, the focus i mean if you've got a, if you've got limited resources mm. the focus is on is always on 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 babies, ch- children who can't really support, speak to themselves, support mm. themselves. Once children get of school age, and, and once they get to secondary school, that threshold gets higher because um, um, because there's a there's a sense that that, that children can act and could actually raise concerns mm. themselves. So you know, it, I find that deeply worrying. And and when we investigate this case in isolation. I think we need to look at actually investigating the system as a whole, yeah. you know, not just actually asking questions about this case. Well, what about the other 500 cases? Right. Maybe that the local authority dealt with, and how did they decide that threshold of, of decision making there? Right.
3: Well, because you do worry, don't you? That there might be other cases like this which don't actually reach such dreadful and fatal conclusions and that there might just be an awful lot more children who are being damaged and being hurt but who are not actually dying so therefore somehow the focus is is not on them but but when you say as well about the kind of resources you know it's often a complaint from the public sector that there's more money needed and they need to do this and and the other Um, cash is not always the answer though it's just sometimes they're not very well run organizations it seems to me
6: yeah, I'm absolutely not going to comment in, in on 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 this case. Um, no, I'm I'm making a general point.
3: I don't know yeah. if that's the case at all with this one. i' I'm, yeah, I'm I mean, not saying yeah. that either.
6: No, no. But I mean the general. I mean it, I mean generally, I think there are issues about how, obviously, about how services actually are run. You know, but but these these instances can happen in very well-run organizations. Mm. It's just actually the level of resources you have to do something pushes. You know, if you have to make a choice. You know, we have got one visit we can do today and I've got these six people <laughs> these six these yeah. six levels of concerns. Which one do I choose? Where do I go? Yeah. Um, um, you know, so so I think it's very easy with hindsight to go, Social services, the staff in social services, police, and all those stuff, do a do a huge amount of good and do a huge amount of work, and are well dedicated and invest their time mm. in making sure that young people are safe. Unfortunately, these things will happen, and you need to, and we need to learn why, they, ha- why mm. they happen and why young people fall through the cracks. And often, unfortunately, that is down to the level of resources that organisations have to do something about yeah. this.
3: No, quite. And I guess uh, the fact that lockdown was on didn't help. I mean, I'm not blaming lockdown. Again, people have mentioned it in passing. But, you know, the fact that, that little Arthur wasn't going to school as he would normally have been, so he wasn't really being seen by as many people as would otherwise have seen him. I wonder yeah. if that did have some part to play.
6: Yeah, I mean, on a safe, you know, safeguarding, normally is is the responsibility of all all organisations that actually come into regular contact with children. So, in in, in more normal times, the expectation would have been that Arthur would have been at school. If he was absent from school, that would have been that would have been noticed if he was coming in with bruises or was actually concerned, um, you know, was showing a, a deep unhappiness or, or some of the symptoms that we've, that we've heard reported. Mm. Um, you know, that hopefully would have tripped alarm bells um, a lot earlier um, in the, a lot earlier in this cycle. But remember, you know, those those concerns were raised by you know people who who should have been listened to, yes,
3: yeah, and I mean there's not really an excuse for that I mean you've mentioned the way that sometimes decisions are made um do you think there's also a kind of reticence in some time uh some some situations where if something looks much more difficult, they'll sometimes not do it
6: um, yeah i i i think I think that is the case um You know, I I think, but on this on this occasion, you know, you've got clear evidence of bruising and physical abuse, Um, and in terms of, you know, the police had pictures, Mm. for example. You know, and you would have thought, at very least, um, you know, that there would have been that 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 would have that would have escalated the level of concern here. Um, You know, and you know, I I guess I'm worried that basically that they were able to. to actually leave this leave 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 the situation and the family you know and actually writing that as no no cause for concern and, mm. and it, it it concerns me that we could have ended that like that how how did that happen is the core question here and i think that's probably that's probably around actually being convinced by by the parents here mm. um you know who who let's let's not forget Nobody else is, respons- is responsible for this crime other than the parents. Um, what potentially we're talking about is organisations failing in their duty to to protect that young person when the when, and Arthur, when the, when the issues were raised to mm. them.
3: Yes. Now, Dean Tahar, we suppose is going to make some kind of statement today uh, in the Commons. We think the Education Secretary. But do you think it's time as well, John, for us to look at the law? And to say that you know there are certain crimes which are so heinous that we basically have uh, life without parole, absolutely no questions asked. You know, do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred pounds. You're in prison. You're never coming out.
6: Um, I I th- I think we already have. You know, we already. You know, we already. We already. We already have that. That's. Yeah. we we already have the option to actually do that yes but and it's an option in, too... as
3: opposed to what I'm saying I suppose is would there be a place perhaps to take the option away and make it a compulsory thing so that you know if you're the judge you have, create, you have committed this crime you've killed a child or you've sexually interfered with a child or something like that um, that means you fall into this category and I don't even have a choice as to whether to make it uh, you will going to prison forever
6: yeah, I think I think for some cases that might be an option that we want. Um, I do. I, I do. I, you know, I do, I personally think that actually at some point people have to pay a debt to society. But but for, for, for many people um, who commit horrendous crimes, um, you know, that, you know, there is there, there is a there is a level of there, there is a, a level of redemption. So I would worry about having a blanket a blank a blank a a blanket thing that says this crime Mm. this result and this penalty you know I think we I think I think it's right that for those who commit horrendous crimes that society has the right to make that decision that they will never be released.
3: Yes because the other problem I suppose that we have is the parole board you know we saw with the Colin Pitchfork case where um, he was allowed out albeit under a reasonably severe set of restrictions, and he was monitored and all of that, thankfully. And that system actually did work because he was recalled to prison, we're told because he was talking uh, and appearing to talk to young women uh, after having been released for the two brutal rapes and murders of two 15-year-old girls back in the 80s. And I worry slightly about the parole board, and I know that um, there's an investigation going on into that as well. They're talking about making it more transparent. But, you know, there's a sense that, you know, these people are being hoodwinked by very clever, manipulative, dangerous criminals to make out that, oh, we're fine now. I mean, you know, what's to say that in 29 years, you know, this woman decides to go in front of the parole board and they say, oh, you seem fine now, we'll let you out
6: yeah i mean I think that's that's a decision for the parole board. I think you have to make you know it's you have to make difficult decisions on the parole board in relation to what you do, but actually there comes a point where where people um you know have served the have served that have have served the the debt to society and then actually it's around making that decision about whether they're safe to be um released into 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 wider society and it's not an easy decision. And I know that actually it's something that is thought about very carefully. And this, the an example you're quoting, actually is one where the system works.
3: Mm. Well, it works. Yeah. Fortunately, it works. But I mean, I'm not confident that that would always be that lucky. You know, it's like the old terrorists used to say, you know, we only have to be lucky once. You have to be lucky all the time.
6: Yeah, but there's a story that, um, you know, I used to work for the probation service. Mm. There's a story that um, somebody said to me um, was that there was somebody who on his reports basically would always write this This person would come back. And so every time basically the person returned to, to prison, mm. they'd open the file and, and there would be a sort of a, a note that said this person will be back. Yeah. And I asked him how he was able to actually predict this so accurately. He said, well, simple. I put it in everybody's report. <laughs> and you only look at them when they come back. Yes. And, you know, the point is that, you know, we do have a society which, you know, I, I think everybody's better than the worst thing that they've done. And actually, you know, offenders like everybody else do actually deserve, um, you know, do, do actually deserve, you know, a, a, a second chance. But we have to do but that. But I don't think these society. two do. I'm,
3: I mean, I'm that's the trouble.
6: These two. I mean, these not two this. do
3: not, in my view, deserve a second chance
6: no 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 absolutely absolutely and i not. think that's no, the, the point you're looking
3: i think that's the bit we're missing john because i appreciate what you're saying and i know yeah. that we like to think of ourselves as a civilized country and we don't want to bring back the death penalty and we don't want to put people away for the rest of their lives but in some cases actually i think we do
6: yeah well as, as i've said you know there are cases where some people deserve to be put away for the rest of their lives mm. um because of the crime because of the rep- rep- reputation, but what I don't want to do is to i mean I guess what I'm saying is, is is a plea not to take this horrendous crime and then basically apply that to to other people who who don't pose such a risk to society mm. and actually over a period of time will have served their debts and will be will be safe to release into the community and the risk is that we take this case and we apply it to to everybody who's 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 in prison for mm. a whole range of of, of offences so mm. yeah absolutely people you know th- th- these 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 two people um uh, from from the facts in front of me absolutely deserve to be there for the rest of their lives but that doesn't necessarily translate into 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 all offenders and all cases
3: no i get that absolutely john thanks very much indeed john jolly the ceo of parent kind talking about of course uh, emma tustin uh, and thomas hughes who have both got 29 years and 21 years respectively a lot of people don't think it's enough a lot of people think they should go away forever and never be coming out i certainly don't think they deserve a second chance not on your life i'm afraid